Our scripture reading this evening is taken from 1 John 2. We turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll read the chapter. We take as our text the first three verses of the chapter. We hear the inspired word of God. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write you no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, that which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son 
the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence. And not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take the first three verses as our text this evening. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this Ascension Day we celebrate Jesus Christ as our advocate in heaven. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the most comforting truth for God's children. Often we think of an advocate and an intercessor. And we understand the fact that both of them are very closely related. The idea of an advocate and the idea of an intercessor. But there is a distinction to be made. And that is this, that intercessor is more broad. An intercessor is anyone who prays on behalf of another. Whereas the idea of advocate is more specific now. One who specifically takes up one matter especially on behalf of that people. And that's what we're speaking of here this evening. The advocate, Jesus Christ, not only makes prayers in general, but the prayer that he takes up on your and my behalf is a prayer before the living God for our justification. That we be declared righteous and that we know that righteousness in Him. Now the Apostle John labored for many years in Ephesus, serving as the pastor in that congregation. As John was laboring in Ephesus, he became aware of anti-Christian teachers that had entered into the church and were spreading lies. Many of the heresies centered around the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was not divine, that he was not the Christ, that he was not the Son of God come into human flesh. And so John took issue with those errors. And that's why we find through the Gospel of John, but also his epistles, an emphasis is on the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is divine. The result, however, of those errors filtering into the church and the denial of Jesus' divinity was that the individual believers... We're not living with a spiritual connection to Christ. They were not living in a 
godly and strong spiritual condition. They were weak. They were giving themselves over to sin, over to worldliness. They did not live in love toward God. They were not walking in union with Christ. And that showed itself. And so John now writes out of concern for his spiritual children. These children need to hear the gospel. And so he stresses a number of things. First of all, concerning Jesus. That Jesus entered into human flesh. That John was an eyewitness, not only of Jesus and his works, but that he had personally touched Jesus. This comes out in chapter 1, emphasizing that we've seen him with our eyes. We laid hold on him. Those that objected to the fact that he was a real person or had real flesh and blood. John establishes the reality of Jesus' body and the wonder of Jesus' divinity. And then he ties it to the Christian believer and the importance of that truth now for the child of God. John is interested, especially in stressing and demonstrating the relation of the believer to sin as a relation, as a result of his relationship to Christ. Because the believer is related to Christ, his relationship to sin now is broken. Sin no longer drives him. Sin is no longer his servant. Christ died on the cross. And Jesus Christ now is the Lord of his children. But he not only died on the cross, he ascended up into heaven. And as he ascended into heaven then, he does so as our advocate. Now, John is speaking here of the reality of the struggle of the child of God. We know Christ. We seek to live in union with Christ. And yet, we sin. We're sinful. And those sins and the guilt of those sins constantly rise up. And so my little children, he says, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. He's urging them, as those who are in Christ, you need to walk with Christ. You need to live obediently before him. But he recognizes the reality of the redeemed child of God's condition. He still has that sinful nature within him. And as a result, we sin. Our sinful natures lead us astray. We confess that sin. We experience forgiveness and grace. But we're driven away from self, away from our sin, to Christ. My little children... If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Through the wonder of the ascension, we have in Jesus an advocate. That is one who's not just praying in general. He is an intercessor, making intercession for us. But specifically, as our advocate, he knows the horror of our sins and sinfulness. And he's pleading before the Father that we are given to know the righteousness that is ours in him. That we might know that we are justified. Our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Jesus' ascension, as we confess, is the climax of his work as mediator. There's a little appreciation in our day for the wonder of the ascension. But the ascension of Jesus is the culmination of his saving work. 
He finished the mission for which God had sent him, and now he returns to the bosom of his father. But he comes now to dwell at God's right hand in order to bring his church to the height of glory and perfection. That work that is for our good and that work that is necessary for us now. This text is speaking of a work that we need now. Jesus Christ, the Advocate. We note that, noting the admonition, the Advocate, and the assurance. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Again, John is concerned here about the spiritual well-being of his spiritual children. He's writing to the saints. That ought to be abundantly evident here, that John is not writing a general epistle. He's writing an epistle to the church, specifically to the church at Ephesus, where he was a pastor. But he's writing a church here to the saints. And that comes out. This isn't a general epistle written to all men. He uses broad language, but at the same time uses we, uses our making application very specifically to those to whom he's writing. It's an epistle that's written to believers, my little children. What a beautiful address that John makes. And what love is expressed in that address. The word translated children there literally means offspring. And the word intends to bring forth or to produce And so John now is talking to these saints who are his spiritual offspring. He's watched them grow and develop. He's seen them come to faith. And as he's watched them and as he's seen them as those who are elect of God, begotten of the Father in time, through the almighty, powerful, irresistible grace of God, preserved and kept, these are the children of God. They're the ones whom he loves, to whom he ministers regularly. Dear children entrusted to him by his heavenly Father. And John addresses those whom he writes as his brethren. These are his brothers and sisters in Christ. The elect remnant found here in the church. They're little children. That's significant. It's an expression of endearment. But it also focuses on the fact that Little children are prone to stumble. They're prone to fall. And so, spiritually, we're prone to sin and prone to fall. His focus is on those little children who are God's children, who are in the light, who are objects of the love of God, who have been born again from above. But yet they're children. And even in a sense, they're little children. They're small children. They're inclined to get in trouble. They're inclined to do things they know they shouldn't do. Things that they've been told not to do. The principle of life is in them, but it's so small. And so John's specific concern is that these children not sin. His children have a mark. And that's the idea, the word that's used here for sin, the familiar word that refers to a mark. And the idea that God calls us to pursue and to seek after that mark that is to the glory and honor of his name. We're to aim the whole of our lives toward that mark of the glory of God and his honor. 
And John knows the threats. He knows the difficulties that they face. And as their lives are directed toward that mark, the devil is constantly tempting them, constantly turning them around, encouraging them to go the other way and to pursue their own will, their own ways. So that he talks in this chapter, as we read, about the world and the temptations and the pressures of the world and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All of this inclines the children of God to turn away from that mark that God has ordained. Now he doesn't write this so that we become careless and so that we become proud, imagining that we're perfect, that we after all, belong to God. We're Christ, and therefore, we don't need to worry anymore about praying. We don't have to worry anymore about sin. They're children of the light. The life of Jesus Christ is within them. It causes them to love God, to embrace Him, to live for Him, to make significant changes in their life that reflect the choices that they make for God and for His glory. So that as God's children are living in life and in holiness, seeking God... Twelve thirty one. Seek ye the kingdom of God. As they're enjoying precious fellowship with God, as he talked about in chapter 1, verse 3, that ye may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Warning, if you say you have fellowship with God and you're walking in sin, you're not telling the truth emphasizing God's children can, God's children will walk according to the truth. They love God. Even emphasizing in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So that while he's emphasizing who we are as children and so on, those who belong to Christ, he's also reckoning with the reality they're little and they're still sinful. And the reality is such that as God's children, born of God, we still sin. And so, his admonition, don't sin. Walk in obedience to God. But acknowledging the reality and if any man sin, we have an advocate. Now, he's not accusing them by that of walking outrightly in unrepentant sin. John knows the power of the devil again. He knows the hosts of the devil that line up against God's children. He knows that we will fall prey to the devil at one point or another. We will sin. And that sin is going to alienate us from God. The child of God who treasures fellowship with God tries to flee from temptation, tries to flee sin. And yet, we often fail. We become complacent. We don't fight sin like we ought. We become proud and think we can stand. And then, all of a sudden, we fall. We keep watching the things we know we shouldn't be watching. Our parents have told us a number of times to avoid something. They've exposed an error, a sin in our life, and yet we keep on doing it repeatedly. 
We know that we need to work at a certain area of a relationship or marriage. And yet, we don't work at it as we ought. We become ungrateful with time and we fall. We fall into sin. Now the believer who falls into sin knows any one sin that I commit makes me damnable before God. Just one sin is enough to send me everlastingly to hell. And so as the child of God wrestles with that desire to obey God and to love God and then falls into sin and experiences the disruption of that fellowship with God and communion with God, that battle is what John here is addressing, similar to Romans 7, which the apostle addresses of the believer and his battle with regard to his sinful nature. What must poor sinners do? Now this text assumes sin cannot destroy your relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's the marvelous truth here. The apostle is writing to the saints a word of comfort. And he's saying, your sin will not disrupt that walk because God will work repentance in your heart and God will turn you from it but ultimately because of this you have an advocate you have one whom God has given on your behalf crying out to him for your justification that you be declared righteous in him and so if any man sin the idea here isn't anyone in the whole wide world but again the idea is anyone within the realm of those who are numbered among God's children. If any of them sin, they turn to their father and they're given to know that they have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so this concerns now the people of God who are in the midst of this world. There are some children of God who are already in heaven. They don't need an advocate any longer. There are some children who have not yet been born. They don't yet need that advocate. But the reference here is to those children of God in the midst of this world for whom Jesus died, for whom he obtained the forgiveness of sins and eternal righteousness. For them, he serves as advocate. Now, the office of an advocate is to plead their cause. It's to plead the cause of another. Jesus is the paraclete, the one who's summoned to give assistance to the people of God. And so the picture is that of a legal courtroom. The Greeks use this word often to refer to legal counsel. And we apply it now to the spiritual realm by the inspiration of the Spirit. Jehovah is the judge in the court. Jesus is is our lawyer. Satan is our accuser. And we're brought now into the courtroom. The judge is faithful. The judge requires payment for every sin that's committed. Every sin must be paid for, must be atoned for. The soul that sins must die. But he never requires payment twice for the sins that are committed. Once payment is made, the matter is completed. The matter is finished. Jesus is our lawyer. 
before the presence of the judge. And though the devil brings all kinds of accusations, accusations that are right, accusations that expose how weak we are, how sinful we are, the lawyer never loses his case because he pleads on the basis of his own righteousness. That which he accomplished on Calvary and that which he performed on behalf of his church and his children. He suffered in their place. He took upon himself all the wrath that was due their sin so that every last sin they committed, it's been paid for. The lawyer never loses and the devil loses his case. He's cast out and Jesus crushes him beneath his heels. Now what a comforting truth for the people of God to know and to believe. And we need to hear this truth. The child of God who has sinned and whose sins pile up as he lives 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years here on earth knows the guilt and the shame of those sins. Deep guilt consumes his soul as he looks at the reality of the commands of God, the goodness of God, and the fact that I continue yet to be so ungrateful. I still give in to those lusts. I look on that which I know I ought not look. The child of God at times broken and contrite because of his sin needs to know you stand before the one who is your advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He ascended up into heaven in order that he might serve as your advocate before the judge of heaven and earth. He stands before the one who demands eternal death of sinners and he pleads your case. We could never come up with enough to pay for his services. We would never be able to afford him. His grace and his love freely are given to us. He paid the price at Calvary. And as we find ourselves returning to the same grievous sins again and again as a dog returns to its vomit, we have an advocate. My little children, John writes, don't sin. Walk in a holy manner. Love God. But if any man sin, we have an advocate. Don't despair. Cry out to him who is seated at God's right hand for you. Literally, the idea there of with the Father is to or towards the Father. And it's a beautiful picture that Jesus Christ is looking toward the Father. He's pleading with his eye on the Father. And the Father is looking at him. He's not afraid to make eye contact. We sinners look down. We don't dare look into the eyes of the holy and righteous living God. But Jesus Christ faces the Father. And the plea that he makes for all those for whom he died, all those whom the Father has given him, is that they are righteous in him. It matters not whether they're rich or poor, whether they're of high or low degree, whether they're strong or weak. How old they are doesn't matter. 
What race they are doesn't matter. He pleads their cause. He's the advocate of the weakest believer in the world as well as the one who may be seemingly strongest. He stands on their behalf. And there's no exception. If any man sin among those for whom Jesus died, we have an advocate. It's not as though we have to turn to someone else first before we can get Jesus as our advocate. Jesus Christ is the advocate for all the believers. He's the advocate for everyone for whom he paid the price of redemption. Some already died. Some haven't yet been born. Some are now living. And those especially are the ones that are on the foreground here. But all who believe to all who belong to Jesus by virtue of election have their portion in his blood. Now what makes the Son of God the advocate? He's the advocate as Jesus. If we just look at his names, Jesus. What does Jesus mean? You children know. It means Jehovah saves. He is the one who saves his people from their sins. He's our advocate as our Savior. He's our advocate as Christ. Remember what Christ means. The anointed of God who fulfilled the office that God gave him was fully qualified as such to represent God in the midst of this world. And he's not a novice. He was called and equipped for this work by Jehovah God. He's Jesus Christ, as our text says, the righteous. So Jesus, Savior, Christ, the anointed, righteous. That title teaches that he is true and faithful. He is trustworthy. His actions are perfectly in conformance with God's will and God's word. He doesn't lie. He's one who can be trusted. He pleads on behalf of the perfect basis of his own work that he performed. He kept God's law. He did so perfectly. To be righteous is to be right with God. He aimed at that mark that God gave him and he did not look away from it. He aimed the whole of his life toward that mark and did so rightly and perfectly. In that way, Jesus stands in sharp contrast to the whole human race. Concerning the human race, it said there's none righteous. They're all turning away from the mark. And they're all going in a manner that's crooked. But Jesus Christ, he is the righteous. The righteous. And all the emphasis of our text really falls on that. Jesus Christ, the righteous. John is saying, little children don't sin. But if you sin, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Your hope is not found in yourself. It's not found in something you can do to try to cover or make atonement. You need to focus on Christ. He is the only one. No one else could possibly be your Savior. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. And as the righteous one, He is the one who is straight and the one who is reliable and trustworthy. He is perfectly in harmony with God and with his will. And he is the advocate toward the Father. 
Now this is another striking point in the text. Notice we don't read of God in the passage. Somewhat striking. We don't ever read about God here in this passage, in these three verses. It's the Father. All the emphasis here is on children and Father. The children who are the elect children of God, adopted into His family. And Jehovah God, who is the loving Father, who has embraced them as His own. Now it's true, Jesus intercedes before God with regard to everything that takes place in the world. He's making intercession for everything that's taking place. Hurricanes, disasters, wars, judgments, all of which are fulfilling God's counsel with regard to reprobation and with regard to the filling of the cup of iniquity by the wicked. Jesus is at work. He's the one that's ruling all these things before God. But when it comes to his people, it's especially his work then before his Father. The one who is the Father of his beloved children. They're the ones for whom Jesus is making intercession. It's the Father's love and the Father's fellowship that he seeks and for which he pleads. We have an advocate constantly, continually, always before the face of our Father. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous, who suffered and died and now is glorified in heaven. He didn't simply go to heaven in order to join Abel and Seth and the believers that had died before him. He went to heaven for a purpose to be our advocate in a very real sense, constantly praying, constantly serving as our living voice in heaven before the Father. This is a wonderful truth of the very real presence of Jesus Christ in heaven on our behalf. And again, there's a mystery and it's difficult to wrap our minds around all of that. If we are God's children, elect from all of eternity, Secure through the blood of Jesus Christ. Why would there be a need for Jesus constantly to be reminding the Father of that? But at the same time, we are yet sinners and sinful. And God has ordained that though He never forgets those for whom Jesus died, He sees them as righteous from eternity to eternity. We have an advocate. God in his mercy giving us this comfort and this peace. My little children, sin not. But, or and, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And as an advocate, he's reconciling the children with the Father. Now again, the reconciliation took place at Calvary. It's a wonder that God accomplished. He changed our legal relationship to himself and to the law before we were the objects of wrath. Now, we are righteous, the objects of love. We were guilty, now we're innocent. But our heavenly advocate is in heavenly glory before the throne of his Father as the righteous one 
pleading on the basis of his perfect propitiation. That's what our text says. He is the propitiation, verse 2, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what does it mean to be a propitiation? A propitiation simply is a covering. He covers all of our sins in such a way that they're completely blotted out. Jesus is the advocate in the way of propitiation. This explains how he's able to be advocate. Propitiation is a covering that makes payment. He covered our sins and made payment as if they had never taken place. And that's the beauty of justification. God looks down on his children just as if we had never committed any sin. Now notice this passage does not say that Jesus makes salvation possible for everyone. They just have to accept it. That's the way some interpret this passage. That's not what this passage is teaching. When it says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, the passage is saying, he is the covering for every last one of our sins. There's no question about it. There's nothing you need to do more. It's accomplished. It's finished. Every last one for whom Jesus died and made propitiation is going to heaven. Jesus alone is able to silence and quench the wrath of the living God. And he does so perfectly. There's none beside him. He appeases God as Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now that makes clear then that the meaning of the text cannot be that he is the propitiation for our sins, that is, for the elects, but then also in some sense for every other person in the whole wide world. Again, the word propitiation is what demands that we have to understand now this text in a particular manner. If Jesus is the propitiation for someone, they're saved, they're covered. The reference then to the whole world in verse 2 cannot refer to all men. If it is, then the meaning is clearly this. Every man, woman, and child in the whole wide world is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and they're all saved. They're all going to heaven. No one is going to hell then. Now that would be the universalist approach. But we know that scripture condemns that approach. Jesus himself in John 17 verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Jesus makes clear some are going to be lost. The Bible makes clear some go to hell. And so it is not the case that Jesus is the propitiation for every man, woman, and child in the whole wide world. This text does not allow for the possibility that He just made it possible, and now it's up to them to do something. Again, if he's the propitiation, they're saved. Their sins are covered. And so we have to understand then that the word world is being used here in a manner differently than all men, women, and children in the whole wide world. 
John uses the word world to refer to the cosmic nature of Jesus' salvation. He does it elsewhere. He does it in John 3, verse 16. The idea that God saves the redeemed humankind. And he calls the redeemed people of God the world. The idea is this, that the rest don't really fit in. They're not, they're not part of the world. They're the chaff. The idea, as we've mentioned before, would be a farmer looking at his field and saying, that's my cornfield, even though there's all kinds of weeds in that field. It's full of weeds. There's way more weeds, perhaps, even than there is corn. It's still his cornfield. God looks at the world, and he sees it as the world of his elect, the world of the redeemed. And God saves the creation along with all those whom he chose and gave to Christ. But even more importantly, the point is that God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ is that which encompasses the whole of the cosmos. It affects the whole of the creation as well as God's children throughout all of the world. And so the world here is a reference to God's elect as they're scattered throughout the world out of all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. Now, the point that John is making is a good point, and it's a point that we need to hear as well. John is speaking to his little congregation at Ephesus, and he's saying, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not just for ours, for those also who are out there, all of his people, wherever they are, so that in the midst of our wicked tendency to limit the kingdom of heaven to just our own people or maybe our own churches, John here insists God's work is broad. It's a glorious work. It's a Catholic church that he is gathering so that Jesus is the propitiation, not just for the church at Ephesus, not just for the saints here, but for the saints that are found throughout the world as God gave them to Jesus, and Jesus will not lose them. What a beautiful truth, again, of the glory of this work of salvation. And we then have this assurance, verse 3, Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. There's the inclination of God's children to forget Christ when they're walking in sin. And then to continue in sin, to give in to the lies and to give in to the sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate. When you sin, think of Christ. And may that drive you to your knees in repentance and drive you to the comfort and the blessed assurance of his perfect work. Now this word is necessary because we sin. Because we're sinful. We examine ourselves in light of God's word and God's law and we see the horror of our sinfulness. We remember God. We remember God's holiness, God's righteousness. And then we think of the horror of sin. The devil brings his accusations again against us. The deep shame, the deep guilt that takes hold of us. And pretty soon we're even wondering, can I be a child of God? How can a child of God Think this way. How can a child of God have been guilty of these gross sins? And if any man sin, we have an advocate 
Remember Jesus. He is your advocate when you sin. Flee to Him. Confess your sins. Be strengthened in the blessed assurance that He died for those sins and that they're covered in the face of Jesus Christ. And be confident that your advocate will not only plead your cause before God and give you the blessed assurance of your salvation, he's also going to strengthen you so that you persevere in that salvation and so that you will not walk unrepentantly, continuously in sin. That's the point that later the apostle makes. Not that it's impossible for God's people to sin, but it's impossible for God's children to continue unrepentantly in those sins because Jehovah God in Jesus Christ will turn them. The advocate is at work by his spirit. How beautifully the apostle expresses himself here. We have him. He belongs to us. He died, rose again, and ascended into heaven so that he might be there for you and for me. And God gave him to us in order that in the midst of our sin and sinfulness, we might be reminded and comforted of the truth of the righteousness that's ours in Jesus Christ. That God gives us the assurance of that salvation. That God doesn't keep us fearful and doubting. But that he gives us Jesus Christ, not as our advocate in the future someday, but now. Right now, in the midst of the sinfulness of my daily life, he saves me from sin. He makes me devoted to God. And he works in me the awareness of the wonder of wonders. That through him, payment has been made. And God is my father. I belong to his family. Constantly, that plea is going up. Constantly, that plea is being granted. And constantly, the Spirit is pouring out his blessing upon my heart and giving me to know that I am righteous and that I am justified in Jesus Christ. Beloved, what a gift. Jehovah God working that wonder in the hearts of his children. And as we stand then before our Heavenly Father, we confess our love for God. We don't just say we love God and then go live in a different manner. We say we love God and we direct our lives toward that mark that he has ordained. Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We know that desire to keep his commandments. We know that longing within us for perfection. And we look to him for the grace to strengthen us in order to obey. Not despairing the reality of continued sin. And looking then to Christ who is our strength our righteousness, and through whom our salvation then is sure. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the precious gift of an advocate, that our salvation is sure in Him, that He is the one whose work is decisive, is sure, and that we are able to rejoice in the wonder of His work on our behalf. We undeserving, we unworthy, we not able to do anything to make ourselves worthy. And yet, in love, thou hast embraced us and adopted us and taken us into thy family. 
And thou dost give unto us daily to know those glorious benefits and the blessed assurance of our righteousness in him. Amen.